Cinephiles, audiophiles, ladies and germs, welcome to the Film Cult Podcast. Tonight, the filmmaker behind Salad Days and Boy Howdy, the story of Cream Magazine, Scott Crawford. Scott, how are things? I'm doing well. Thanks, thanks. Just trying to stay sane in the middle of a pandemic. But other than that, I'm doing good. How would you say that the pandemic has directly impacted you? Um, well, I don't have any social life, so that's that's one thing. Um, but uh can't say that I'm complaining about that too much anyway, because I'm pretty much a shut-in. But, uh, <clears throat> but in terms of the movie... It's it's definitely affected it. I mean, it's affected everybody's film. I mean, from James Bond on down, um, you know, films are being delayed left and right, and uh, we're really no exception. So um, having said that, we, we are launching, uh, the film is premiering August 7th, and um, I think it's actually starting, I think it's actually, don't quote me on this, but I believe July 31st is the premiere in Canada. Okay. So, um, yeah, what they're doing is they're, it's what's called a virtual cinema experience, which means that, you know, uh, assuming your local theater is participating, um, you can buy a ticket just like you would any other movie theater and then watch the film at home um, through that movie theater's back end. So, in other words, if you go to, like, AMC theaters or Regal Theaters or something and then... You buy the ticket, you buy it from home, and then you're able to watch the film, you know, in 5.1 if you have it, um, and it's and it's uh, screened directly from the, the, the theater and uh, to your home. So it's kind of a new a new thing that that theaters are doing, and um, seems to be working okay, um, as well as a number of drive-ins are doing it, but. Uh, um, the nice thing about it is that you get, you know, almost a month jump start on everyone else if you do it that way. Um, it's hitting video on demand at the end of August, so this this allows folks to, to see it sooner if they want to. Well, speaking of Cream, do you think that a part of rock history would have been lost or unnoticed if it wasn't for Cream? Or do you think it was inevitable for something to come out of that scene? No, I think that there's something special about Cream, and I think that um, it wasn't just the music, it was the way the music was written about, and I think that those two things go hand in hand, and I think that um, had you not had Cream, I know for me personally, had Cream not existed, uh, I wouldn't have listened to music, you know, I, I... I challenge anyone to find the, the kind of writers that wrote for Cream that would have written for, say, Rolling Stone at that point, since that was the only other really big one out there, um, that, that could have done what those critics did for for rock and roll. I mean, they, you know, they talked about it in ways that have never been talked about. you got to remember, too, rock criticism was only, when they started, I mean, they started in 69, so by their heyday, you know, mid-70s, rock criticism was still only 10 years old. So they were really inventing how to discuss music and how to, um, just how to, um, you know, how to be critical. And, and yet, um, you know, these were all people that were incredibly passionate about the music that they were reviewing. Um, they weren't, 
you know, they could be snarky as hell, but the, but it wasn't for the sake of being snarky. It was truly out of the love of the music. Like, you know, if Lou Reed put out a record that, you know, Lester Bangs didn't think was up to snuff, he was going to let you know about it, but not because he wanted to. Well, maybe it was Lou Reed. I don't know. But he, but it wasn't because he, he, he <laughs> it wasn't because he wanted to just be a, you know, a jerk. It was because like, hey, you know, you can do better than this. Where'd you, get, you know, what are you doing here? Um, so, I think that um, the way that they wrote about rock and roll um, uh, really is just without equal. So, I'm not sure how we would. Um, certainly, the way that we read about rock and roll today, I think, would be. I, I do. I really do think would be dramatically different. I, I just I, without without. The, the the voice that Crane provided, I just I can't see it being the same. Well, why do you think it was number two to Rolling Stone when it had somebody like Lester Bangs giving some of the greatest music writing that I think has ever been published? Well, I think there is an honesty to Crane. I think you know, love it or hate it. I think um, there was an honesty, and I think that that showed. And I think that um, you know, Crane had this sort of bite the hand that feeds kind of editorial approach, uh, whereas Rolling Stone was more concerned with advertising, more concerned with placating, you know, the people that were paying the bills. And uh, that just wasn't the case with Cream. I'm not saying it didn't exist in, in, on some levels, but, you know, if, uh, you know, if Robin Trower put out a back, you know, his record label paid for a full-page ad on the back of the magazine, that didn't guarantee a good review for his album. And there was never a message from the public that Barry Kramer saying, hey, these guys are on the back cover, you've got to give them a good review. That just wasn't how it worked. Um, they were, you know, uh, you know, in the magazine business, they call it church and state. Well, they, they were very, you know, respectful of that. And I, 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 I can't say the same for Rolling Stone. Um, so I think that also musicians... As much as consumers, musicians love the magazine as well because um, they told the truth. And I think even if a musician, and I talked to so many artists during the course of the film that said this, that even if they got trashed, they knew it was coming from the right place. And they might have been pissed off about it at the time, but if it, if it, especially if it was Lester, it was almost like a rite of passage. It was almost like, oh, hey, we just got destroyed by Lester Bang. Um, then Lester could have easily, the next album could have loved it, or even the next week could have loved it. So it was just, um, I think it was a musician's magazine as well as a consumer magazine, and I don't think you had that with Rolling Stone. Did you find that the Kickstarter element helped ease the financing process this time around, or did it provide a whole new can of worms? Well, anytime you do Kickstarter, there's a whole can of worms that you open up. And um, I feel very strongly about um, crowdfunding. I actually think it's a good thing because you're not um, beholden to some uh, investor or something that's breathing down your neck and, you know, wants it done a certain way you had that freedom. And so obviously that what we raised in Kickstarter was not enough to, to pay for the film. We had to go out and get additional funding to finish it, 
which we were lucky enough to do, and I'm grateful for the for the folks who who did that. But um, but that initial seed money allows you to hit the ground running and just start. And I'm always about just starting. I'm not the type of person that likes to sit and you know spend months working on Excel spreadsheets. Once I get the you know once I have the funding, I'm like boom, let's hit the ground running. Let's just start. And then once the movie starts and you're in production, then that becomes uh, even more valuable because now you've got something to show investors. Um, you know, so yeah, it's a it's a it's um. It's a nerve-wracking process. I did it with Saladay as my first film, and um, I was lucky enough to hit my goal in six days on that one. On the Cream Doc, I think we hit it after about three weeks, and then we surpassed both films. Well, surpassed what we were asking, so we we really lucked out. But it was a lot of hard work. It is like twenty-four-seven for thirty days. I mean, you're working it, working it, working it. You know. Well, did having JJ on board help to ease the filmmaking process along, or were the interviews a long and tedious process with this one? No, I didn't mind the interview. I, I mean, I like the interviews. I, I, I like doing all that. Um, um, I like to understand people and I like to try and figure out, you know, the motivations and, and everything else. It, help, it just helps, you know, propel the story a little bit. Um, and we did several interviews with JJ, and JJ's a great interview. Um, and JJ is a great, a great producer and he really helped out. And of course, um, you know, allowed us kind of just opened up <clears throat> his scrapbooks. Um, and we got some amazing footage of, you know, Lester that had never been seen before that he found in his mom's basement. Um, no one's ever seen that black and white footage of him, um, where he's like got a paper bag over his head. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, that's never been seen before. Um, and then tons of photographs that had never been seen before. So without him, I mean, it, it you know, I don't think the movie could have been made, or at least not made properly. How much was left on the cutting room floor on this one? A lot. Um, there were, do, I mean... Do you, do you see a big I, director's cut coming with the DVD release on this one? Not on the DVD. Maybe give me five years, and then I'll do it. Um, right? <laughs> right now, I'm a little... Um, yeah. Um, I, I think I just need a little bit of a, of a break. But I think... Um, but, but, but having said that, we did do a lot of... We put... I think there's like a dozen or more extras on the DVD. So you'll see a lot of stuff that didn't make it into the film. There's some really nice stuff that we put in there uh, on the DVD. Um nice little snippets and there's one even there's actually one reenactment that we did that would turn out really well and we we hired actors and everything to um uh, reenact a scene that jj sort of narrates where it's like if rolling stone and cream walked into a bar together and uh it's, it's a really funny scene so you'll see that that's on the dvd extras but most of the stuff um i mean there were there were the stuff that was left on the cutting room floor was just a lot of detail stuff. It was just a little too much in the weeds, I felt like. And so I always wanted to, you don't want to go too far in the weeds when you're trying to make a film that anyone can relate to. You know, I mean, this is a real underdog story. And if you go too far into, you know, just the mechanics of making a magazine or, or, 
or this or that. It just, it loses, I, I think, it loses its sort of impact. So I tried to stick to the broader themes, but but there's certainly some um, some interesting little side roads we took that we just couldn't um, fit into the film. Well, was there ever a, um, a moment in the history of Cream that really interests you, that really didn't have a lot of archival footage that you weren't able to delve into as much? Well, um, the early period um, was interesting to me because, you know, 69, when it was first launching, um, I mean, there is some footage in the beginning when you see the blue and white, but that was like 70. So I missed, I would have liked to have seen the inside of Barry's head shop, or I would have liked to have seen more of Tony Ray or, or things like that. So a lot of that stuff was just, you know, just doesn't exist. Um, we were lucky enough to get uh, some nice footage from uh, from Birmingham, and the photos from Wad Lake I thought were beautiful. There's some really great stuff from there. So really, I guess if there was one period, it would have had to have been that very, very, you know, those very early stages of Korean. Well, dealing with such larger-than-life characters that were the Cream staff, do you regret not trying to get the Cream film done a few years ago to maybe avoid some of the social justice warriors that I could see coming after putting a, a light onto these figures again? Uh, in what way? What do you mean? <clears throat> it just seems like the younger generation's really going after like the boomers and the guys that partied. That's definitely right. what the cream staff was. Do do you think that they're right, going to come sure. after the film? The be it that you're putting a light to these larger than life characters in 2020, or do you not I, see that I, happening I, I at think, all? I, I think there's a possibility, and that's sure. But you have to. It's like I said before. You have to look at this through the proper lens. You can't look at it through 2020, and I think. I think we made that, I tried to make that pretty clear. I think to avoid the sexism and, and, the, and the just at sometimes just overall nastiness that existed um, in the magazine that, again, came from a place of humor but, um, but not, didn't land right. And, you know, at the time was still just as offensive <laughs> um, as it is now. But but you have to look at it as, you know, 1975, 1976. Look at any magazine <clears throat> or any bit of literature at that point, and that's kind of how they spoke. It's like, you know, it's like watching the Bad News Bears or something. Like, I mean, the way they talked, you know, is not the way we talk now, but it's the way they, they spoke in 1977 or 76. It's just like any other film where they use, you know, words that are not part of our hopefully not part of our vernacular anymore, you know, or not used in that same way. So, but, you know, I think we made that pretty clear. Like, even the women, you know, well, first of all, it should be noted that a lot of the offensive, quote-unquote, offensive captionings, uh, captions were written by the women. Um, and it was a, there was a ton of women that worked for the magazine at all, from the very beginning. So, uh, and I'd be hard-pressed if I didn't find, in all the research I did, there was not a single story or anything that I'm aware of where uh, anything, any 
advances or anything inappropriate was made towards any of the female staffers. Um, you know, I think there was a mutual respect um, among among that core group of people. So, um, other than the than the, than the captionings and the um, you know the headlines at times, um, you know, I, I, it was a pretty progressive at, at, um, environment, um, despite what you might think from reading some of the captions. But if you, you know, for example, if you read their manifesto that they wrote in 1971, I believe, I mean, it's very progressive, very forward thinking. So, uh, I, I can certainly see where people might cringe at some of the stuff that's said in, on those pages, uh, from, from the mid seventies. Um, but I didn't want to shy away from it either. Um, you know, this is like a warts and all kind of film. So, well, did you notice the impact that Cream had had on the DC scene while making the documentary on both of the scenes? That's a great question. I, it, it's funny. I asked a lot of the people, not a lot, but a number of the key f- folks that I did that I interviewed for Salad Days. I said, "Hey, I, did you guys ever read Cream back in the day?" And it was a unanimous yes. Like everybody that I, almost everyone that I spoke to for salad days. And when I went back and told them about cream, they all said, boy, howdy. Like they all instantly knew and we're all readers of, of cream. So, um, it, to me, it was a logical next film because it, they're very similar in a lot of ways. There are a lot of parallels between the two. They're both underdog stories. They're both stories of, um, you know, kind of against all odds kind of thing where, you know, DC was this, there is no music infrastructure here, nothing. And so these folks, you know, these, these uh, folks had to create something out of nothing. And Detroit had Motown. So it did have a, a somewhat of a music infrastructure, but, um, but in terms of rock and roll, you know, I mean, Iggy Pop, the MC5, Alice Cooper, uh, you name it. I mean, they all, you know, created their own thing and, and really helped define that Detroit sound. And then to create a magazine that's not on the coasts, um, but, it, you know, in the middle of Detroit and then become the number two magazine to Rolling Stone. I mean, that's, you know, that's a pretty great story. What was the first moment that you realized you were in the middle of something special while growing up in Washington, D.C.? I think having the backdrop of, of the White House and politics in my back, in my back, literally my backyard, um, it was something that was talked a lot about at the dinner table as a kid, and I think I was not unusual in that. I think politics were were part of your daily, you know, discussions uh, in your household if you lived here. I think because, you know, A, it's happening in real time right down the street, and B, you had, you, you got to remember that the punk scene here was, was different than L.A. or Boston or New York. I mean, these were sons and daughters of lawyers, lobbyists, politicians, VIPs, um, you know, State Department, uh, you name it. I mean, these were important people. And these were smart people and um, and just had a different approach to creating punk rock. And um, it wasn't the sort of uh, nihilistic, um, misogynistic stuff that was happening around the rest of the country. It was never... It just wasn't like that. So, um, but I didn't realize that at the time. The guy just took it for granted. I thought that's how every scene was until I sort of 
drove around the country and realized, oh, wow, okay, we we got something really special here. Well, would you say that you were searching out bands with the same political ethos as you, or did the politics get molded by the bands that you were surrounded by? I think it was, um, you know, some bands, in D- uh, I don't know if you're talking about just D.C. or if you're talking about uh, in general. Oh, well, like, I'm, at that point. I'm more talking about D.C., but e- everything in your youth. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah, I mean, um, I always liked the political bands. Um I mean, one of my all-time favorite punk bands that were always political and really put their mouth, you know, put their money where their mouth is, was, and still is, DOA, um, right there from Canada. Um, uh, they were great. Um, I always loved, uh, there were a bunch of local bands that were very political that I liked, but you also had, you know, some were not overtly political. Some were, um, you know, very introspective, and their lyrics were, you know, almost poetic although i'm sure they'd hate it if i said that but but so i didn't necessarily seek out like oh they're a political band i'm gonna go to you know it was you know let's there were a lot of really not so great political punk bands too so it wasn't so much that it was really just the way that they approached the songs and and, and, and the lyrics and just their sort of aesthetic i guess is what drew me to them more than anything what was the initial spark to make Salad Days into a film and not just something written? Well, it's funny because I actually did start off thinking I was going to write a book um, because I had all these years that I spent. It was really like a, I, I kind of saw it as like a coming of age thing because I started going to shows when I was twelve and didn't and I never stopped. So and so I saw all these changes that took place and then. While in, in real time, you know, while it was happening, and I saw you know, just crazy stuff that like no twelve year old should see. So it was just a lot of like, I thought, well, you know, hell, this could make a great book. But then I realized, you know, writing a book, you're leaving out the most important element here, and that is the music. So I, I, I scrapped the idea of a book and decided, no, I, I, the music has got to be a part of this. It helps drive the story. It helps illustrate just how powerful this stuff was and that's when i started developing the film do you think that dc has changed even since salad days has come out dc is is um no longer an affordable place to live i mean it's up there with new york or williamsburg or you know brooklyn or something uh i don't know how people do it i don't know how people um are able to to live there uh in terms of just the rents and stuff like that um, it's very gentrified. I mean, if you, for example, the two clubs that I went to, I frequented the most as a kid because they were two all-ages clubs. One was called DC Space, which I have such fond memories of. I saw so many amazing bands. I saw everyone from Sun Ra to Marginal Man to Beef Eater to Big Black there. Um, and, but, you know, the maximum capacity was like 88 people. I'll never forget seeing the sign on the wall. You know, 88 people, maximum wild. And there was always like 200, 300 people in there. But anyway, um, that um, DC space is now a Starbucks. And the other club I went to a lot, uh, which you might have heard of, was called the 930 Club, mm-hmm. the old 930 Club. There's a new one now. But the old one, uh, the old one is now a J. Crew. 
So that just goes to show you because at that when, when um, how much things have changed. Uh, when I was going to see those shows, DC Space across the street, it was a row of just peep shows and porno like um, video stores, and then Nine Thirty Club right across the street, right down the street and to the right, there were more peep shows and more porno video stores. Um, none of those exist now. Now it's, you know, it's all, you know, fancy, you know, chain stores and stuff. So, um, so yeah, and that's, and some of that has happened since Salad Days came out. Some of it was happening before Salad Days. I mean, it's been about a 10 to 15 year um, you know, process where, where things have changed so dramatically that, but, but back then DC, as it says in the movie, DC really closed at night because probably like a lot of other towns, the downtown area, it's a government town, right? So everyone, when the clock, you know, when it hits five o'clock, it's like, boom, everyone leaves and they go to the suburbs. So the downtown area was like deserted. And so it was kind of a, a kind of a playground. If you, you know, if you wanted to go explore weird, fucked up bands, you could go do that and not, uh, I mean, every once in a while the cops would hassle you, but not generally. Mostly it was just, you were, you were left alone. Well, speaking of the cops, what do you think of the protests right now? Well, I'm, I'm really upset about what I'm seeing happening in Portland, where you're seeing these federal, quote unquote, federal I don't know what they are. Officers, they, all they say is police on their on the on their um, uniform. Um, that's concerning to me because I know that that's uh, that's happening in Portland. I know it's going to start to spread in other cities. These people aren't being read their Miranda rights. They're not being uh, the police are not identifying themselves. They're being these these protesters are being literally thrown into the back of a rented minivan and hauled off and who knows what happens to them after that. So, um, that, that concerns me. Um, as far as, you know, a couple of weeks ago with the black lives matter, uh, you know, I think, you know, a lot of people may not agree with me on this. It's a sensitive subject. I realize that, but, uh, I'm certainly not in favor of people getting hurt, but sometimes you gotta, Sometimes you got to burn things down in order to get people's attention, and uh, I know that that might not be a popular opinion, but you got to make some noise, um, or else the you know the the media is not the media will just ignore you, and if the media ignores you, you're not getting your point made, and you can see what happened there when um, when they made their you know arrests were made uh, by the you know by the police that are. You know, the police were arrested in several of those situations, and um, and things have quieted down until the next time it happens. You know, so it's it's a volatile time right now in America. And it's um, unfortunately um, that's coming from um, that's coming from the White House on down. So um, you know, it's it's a scary time, but we'll get through it. Do you see real change coming from this? I'd like to think so. I mean, I, I, I can't, I just can't fathom um, something, real change coming out of all of this misery. I just, I can't see it happening. I mean, it just, it has to. Um, we, you know, we are a laughing stock. We're 
uh, just, you know, we're, no one respects us around the world. Um, you know, we're, you know, we're, we are so, we have, we have, we have turned the clock back like 50 years in terms of our relationship with the rest of the world. And it's just, it's a horrible, it's embarrassing, frankly. And, um, so I'm looking forward to whoever it is that comes in, will shake things up and, and return things to, you know, and let's get back to, I don't even know what normalcy is anymore because I've been living through three years of chaos. But I think, um, I think that, uh, Whoever comes in, assuming it's not Trump, I think we'll, uh, I'm, I'm hoping, restore some of these uh, relationships and uh, restore some, uh, you know, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, trust in um, the American people. Well, it's been stated many times about the rage in music dissipating, even though we're living under one of the most divisive presidents of all time. Do you think that this is the case? Do you see new artists rising up to the challenge right now? I know it's happening, um, and I'm seeing some here and there. Um, I, you know, I can't help it, you know, you know, call me a boomer, but I can't help but think back to when Reagan was in office and who served as such a great, <laughs> um, you know, uh, motivator for so many great songs. Um uh, I'm not seeing that with, with Trump. Um, maybe it's just not as overtly. Um, I mean, back then you had, you know, I mean, they just came out and said what they wanted, um, you know, about Reagan. Um, so maybe, you know, the lyrics aren't quite as uh, simple as they were back then, but uh, I'd like to see more of it. I'd like to see, <clears throat> excuse me, I'd like to see uh, bands really make a name for themselves off of, um, you know, doing some things creatively to, to kind of protest the current administration. Um, I'm sure they're out there. I'm sure they're, they're fighting a good fight. I just, I, I'm drawing a blank right now on, on who those bands might be, but I, I know that they're out there. They always will be. Well, I want to take you back for a second. What would you say is the biggest thing that you learned from your time running Metrozine? <laughs> um, God, that was so long ago. Um, <laughs> geez, that was... How long ago was that? I was 12 when I started that. So, yeah, I won't get into how many years ago that was. But uh, <laughs> it was a while ago. Um, <laughs> but uh, I think it helped. I just, you know, as a 12-year-old, I don't know. I just didn't have any fear. Like, I just walked straight up to these folks and just started asking questions. And it wasn't always easy because a lot of them would laugh. Um, laugh at me, you know, like, who, who are you, kid? Um, and in fact, I remember one, one time Bob Mould, I, I asked, uh, Bob Mould, I, I saw Husker Du, um, play at this club. It was an afternoon show and they played to about 15 people. And, and, uh, maybe that's why he was in such a foul mood, <laughs> but I, I went up to him afterwards and said, Hey, I had this fan thing. Could I interview you? And he laughed at me and kind of walked away. And then Grant Hart, the drummer, came up to me and said, hey, hey, you you got a fan thing? Yeah, I'll do an interview. And he sat down. He was super cool, and we did the interview. And 
So I think what, what I think it helped me just kind of um, with my confidence and just being able to just go up and start a conversation and um, and do it and just knew, know that you know I got one shot at this and I think that you know and I gotta I gotta I gotta do it and so I think um, that helped certainly in well I did a magazine years later so it helped when I did that but it also helped in making films. I mean, to be able to sit down and have a conversation with someone, you know, openly and freely, you know, that's not, you know, that's, that's something that takes practice. And, 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 and luckily it was something I started doing when I was a kid. So. Well, why did you decide to launch the heart magazine? Well, my whole life, ever since I, I was doing the fanzine as a kid, um, all I ever wanted to do was make a living out of um, running a magazine. And so, <clears throat> excuse me, so I, um, that was always in the back of my mind. It was always like, you know, the one thing I hadn't done. I tried. And, and <clears throat> so it got to the point where I was doing magazine art for years, um, a number of different consumer publications. Um, that were you know, pretty good-sized consumer publications. And um, so I made a living at that, and then I eventually became a freelance magazine art director. And it got to the point where things were going very well. So I thought, you know what? I'm going to put aside some of this money, and I'm going to go for it, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to launch this magazine because I knew exactly what I wanted it to be. I studied the newsstand. I knew that at that time you had Spin, Rolling Stone, and then you had lesser magazines like one called No Depression, which was like an alt-country magazine, and then you had another one called Magnet, which was like Spin Junior. So I said, well, I like alt-country, but I also like indie rock and punk rock. So no one's doing a magazine that covers both. So... That's where I went straight down the middle. And luckily, um, it did really well with it. I ran it for eight years. Another company bought it, and then I ran it. I, I was their editor and art director for that magazine for eight years, and I ran it out of uh, that publishing company's office. We had a staff of about 12 people. So that was a real highlight in my, uh, real high point in my life. Well, when you launched the online music portal, uh, Blurt, would you say that you learned a lot of lessons from back in the day when you were releasing stuff like the Alive and Kicking compilation? Well, Alive and Kicking came out in 1985. That was something that I had done, again, as a kid. And the funny thing about that is it's um, the first record that Dave Grohl ever appeared on. Um, but, <coughs> excuse me, but... Um, the Blurt thing, I, I did that right after, um, I want to start all going to it, but um, Harp was kind of, um, I just came into work one day and was told, yeah, we're not doing this anymore, which was a complete shock to me because it was the one thing that I, you know, loved. So um, there was some legal stuff and I can't get into it, but anyway, um, so... Um, I said, okay, well, 
time to do it again. So we can do it again. But but the second time around, I said, okay, but I want I want more attitude and I want I want more more punk rock. And um and then really and it and it, it came out of the gate really. Well, I mean, it, it came out of the gate great. And then I just was in a place in my life where it it just I just. I think I was just burnt out, honestly, and um, just couldn't really handle the day-to-day. It just wasn't interesting to me. Just not, I didn't have the infrastructure that I needed, and it was just a lot of work, um, which I normally don't mind, but, you know, doing magazines for going on 10 years, and then you go straight into another one that's all yours, because I had partners with Harp, and those are the ones that decided it wasn't, um, they didn't want to continue. So, uh, so I just burned out very quickly on that and sold that to someone else. So I wasn't, I was only involved with that for about a year. Well, what can we expect from you coming up? So, uh, the film comes out August 7th and then, um, and then hits uh, video on demand at the end of the month. I believe it. I don't want to get the date wrong, so I might have to get back to you on this. But I think it's August 27th or August 26th. And then, um, and then, and now these dates might be different for Canada, but um, that's uh, so I can check back with you or for you and check what those dates are. And then, it, and then it hits DVD in. Um, late October, and you'll see, like, tons of bonus features on that one. And then uh, I've started working on the next documentary, which is um, the story of um, uh, Vancouver native um, Joe Keithley from DOA. And DOA was, like, one of the greatest punk bands in the last 40 years. They really laid the blueprint for how to tour this country for bands like the Dead Kennedys, Black Flag, Minor Threat. And, you know, their, their, their slogan has always been talk minus action equals zero. So, again, going back to what we were saying, um, always a political band, but, but they always had a sense of humor, too. But Joe Keeley is, uh, you know, this sort of beloved figure, and, um, and he... In 2018, ran for council member um, in uh, Burnaby, which is a population of about 250,000, so it's no small town, and won against all odds. Uh, his opponent had like a $300,000 uh, war chest, and I think I think Joey had like five grand. And but Joey won for the Green Party. So the next film will be following Joey from now up until his next election, 2022, win or lose. So it'll be, you know, one-third of the film will be about DOA, and then the rest of the film will really be just shadowing Joey and and, and showing the sort of um, what goes into running a campaign. So it's kind of the perfect combination of the two things that interest me right now, which is music and activism. Well, I'm very excited to hear that. Uh, I know most of us on this show are incredibly big fans of DOA and Joey Shithead, so I'm very excited to know that there's a documentary coming. There is, there is. Like I said, we've already started shooting it, um, and we've got a trailer already done, and we'll be doing a um, 
Kickstarter campaign once again for the film. So maybe we can talk again about that when it comes out. And that'll probably be in September. But um, it's going to be... It's, I'm really excited. It's something different <clears throat> for me. And, um, and, and, and you know, Joey's such a great guy, such an inspiration to me, always has been. So, um, and to capture this stuff in real time while it's happening um, and to capture that energy that comes with, you know, knocking on doors and, you know, getting people's votes, all of that, um, that'll all be in the film. Well, I'm, I'm curious now, did you ever see DOA uh, play DC back in the day? And did Hardcore 81, did. Did, did Hardcore 81 have an impact on the artists in the DC it area? Did. Yeah. Everyone loved DOA in DC because DOA played here in like 1980 at a high school. And there's this famous show where they played, or infamous, I should say, um, this uh, high school. Um, and I believe it was with Minor Threat. They also played the year before at a place called uh, Madam's Oregon. So they had come here. They were really the first out-of-town punk rock band that had ever come here. Uh, well, with the exception of maybe the, the Cramps or something. But, I mean, on that level, on that, like, hardcore punk level, they were the first um, to really come here and really made an impression on everybody. I mean, they're such a great live band. And I saw them... Excuse me, I saw them in 1984 uh, at a place called uh, WUST Radio Hall, which is now the current 930 Club. Back then, it was just a literally like a, a an open hall. There was no you know no bar, no nothing, and uh, they were they were phenomenal. In fact, that was if I remember correctly, that was Diagnosti's first show. Diagnosti opened for DOA on that show, so. That was so. So DC, yeah. So DOA have a, that kind of a special place here, I think. Well, so again, it's it's like the third the third film now that all kind of comes <laughs> kind of comes full circle a little bit. Well, I'd like to thank you uh, again so much, Scott. Uh, it was a pleasure having you on. I hope to speak with you again even more on the Joey film, and uh, I, I hope nothing but so the much. best uh, for the cream rollout. Hope everybody goes and sees it and make sure everybody goes back and uh, checks out Salad Days as well. Great documentary if you missed it. And if you didn't, go revisit it. It's great. Thanks so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Make sure to check out Boy Howdy, the story of Cream Magazine on August 7th. And look for it on Blu-ray and DVD this fall. You can pick up Scott's film Salad Days anywhere you get movies currently. This concludes our broadcast day.